Hey, good morning, San Diego. Welcome to another podcast with Max Faker. I was really excited today. I have uh, this cool guy. We're going to get to know him. Um, Amar Kampanajar. So, Amar, welcome. Thanks for saying my name right. Yeah, hey, I got it right, right? I I had some practice. I appreciate you being here. I know know you're a super busy guy. So... This is um, important. Thank you for having me. And it's down the street from where I live. So yeah, that's awesome. That's even better. Um, so let's get started. Well, first off, let's talk about San Diego. We're having some really cool weather, cool yeah. stuff going on in San Diego. Businesses are opening mm-hmm. up. And um, economy is getting back on its feet. Right. And uh, it's exciting, I, I think, especially for a small business community. So that that always speaks well to me. Right. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, the governor uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago by now, made the official transition from pandemic to endemic, right? Oh, there we go. And that we're opening up the days of closing down schools and businesses and and mandates are are slowly kind of becoming in our rearview mirror. And that means that we could begin to build back um, and I think that's a great sign of optimism for cities like Chula Vista that are on the rise, right? We've talked about Chula Vista for some time, me and you, as we've talked. And it's really, I think, the, the last bastion of growth in San Diego County. Yeah. So right on the heels of this pandemic to endemic transition, we're seeing you know, small businesses emerge. We've seen small businesses actually start in the middle of the pandemic, which is pretty heroic. Yeah. And that speaks to the entrepreneurial spirit of Chula Vista. And I think and we'll have some great stories mm-hmm. coming out of these businesses that started up during the pandemic. Right. Because the dynamics were different. Right. For sure. And you, you saw some, you know, um, some, you know, fixtures of the community, businesses that we've known and loved for decades go away. And that's heartbreaking. But with that comes new opportunities for new businesses. So it's a sign of optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these phoenixes rising from the ashes, that is the small business community of Chula Vista and California as a whole. So... I think we're turning the corner on this, and I'm excited. Awesome. And obviously, California and San Diego has beautiful weather. So yeah. if nothing else, come visit for that, right? Well, we're going to talk more about Chula Vista in a little bit. So let's see here. First ever Latino Arab American who ran for Congress. That's right. So what was that like? It's an interesting thing to do in the middle of a, a very uh, you know, charged political climate, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat, but I have a lot of friends and family who are Republican, a lot of the voters that voted for me were Republican, but you know, it's it wasn't it was it was, you can't deny the fact that we had a president who was trying to ban half of my ethnicity and then deport the other half of my ethnicity, right, Mexican and Arab. So it was really uh, a juxtaposition against what we were seeing, you know, in Washington in the White House, and I felt like uh, I could be a candidate who people wouldn't have to focus on my hues, but my views. Right, what I stood for, making sure that anybody, no matter what you are, Democrat, Republican, that I could provide policies and solutions that help everybody, Democrat, Republican, live, work, and retire with dignity. That's the American dream that I came here for, my family came here for, you know, your Unlike story. Myself, yeah. And and all of us, you know, uh, those who come from immigrants or immigrants ourselves, we know what it's like to not have a democracy, not to have capitalism. And so we are the ones who least take it for granted, Right. Um, but unfortunately, there is this fear of the other, especially with globalization, especially with, you know, uh, industry and factories shutting down and, and we're moving more towards new collar jobs and those blue collar jobs are going away. Uh, people start to wonder what's going to happen. Do they have a place in this country, right? The people who are the native uh, population who've been here for generations. And so it's easy to scapegoat people like us. 
but we're the ones who really have the solutions that want to lift up everybody's life and create economic growth for everybody. Um, so I think, you know, when I ran for Congress, I was able to cut through some of that uh, fear of the other by really talking about what I stood for. And but you also took a risk, but mm-hmm. really, really leading with this idea of the, you know, the first ever um, Latino Arab American. Uh, American because In the Trump I'll, era, no less. Yeah, yeah. I, because I'll tell you, I mean, back to my own kind of younger days, and of course, you know, I won't give my age away, <laughs> but, you know, in, in my homeland, you know, when, when the revolution happened there, I'll tell you, I, I, I would do anything and everything to, to mask my, my right. uh, background. And fortunately, with my complexion, you know, I could get away with being Greek or Turkish right. or, you know, anything. And a but name like Max Zacher can be pretty. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I admire the fact that, that you, are, you, you, you were leading with that identity. Well, thank that you. In fact, it's a strength, not, I you know. I think so. Thank you. And, you know, I think it's because of people like you, the generation or half a generation before me, like yourself, um, you guys paved the way for us, right? You normalized being Middle Eastern or Latino working person, not just in business, not just in you know as as a worker for a company, but someone who starts their own business in real estate, in telecommunications, in every industry, in law, doctors. You're seeing our community merge and emerge into the mainstream, and because of that, because of work like the people like you have done, that really help us show a, our entrepreneurial spirit and put us into mainstream, I was able to unapologetically run as a Latino Arab American. And my first election, I lost by like 1.7%. So it wasn't because of the complexion of my skin or my name. It was I was running in a Republican district, and I almost won. So that shows me that slowly but surely we're getting, we're getting closer to that idea of embracing pluralism, embracing multiculturalism. And obviously, we're going to have you know fits and starts with that, like anything else. Um, but I think the arc of history is moving towards embracing people for who they are, not not the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Well, we've come a long way. I, I think you and I can agree on that. Are we are we quite there yet? I I, no. I think uh, I think we can all agree that that right. we've got you know we've got ways to go and we've Absolutely. got work to do. Right. Uh, that's why I think it's important for for folks to to be in public office like yourself bring those conversations to the forefront right uh, so that we don't we don't run away from it now where were you born you were born in san diego right yeah born in east county okay and then uh in 1993 we moved to chula vista i was four years old uh and lived on the west side of chula vista off of j street on kearney woodlawn avenue Uh and we moved around a lot i mean my family my mom and dad separated so we were a single income family and my mom struggled so like a lot of families, and, and you work in real estate, you know this, a lot of folks move around because of affordability, right? Mm-hmm. So we lived off of Woodlawn and Kearney, and then we lived on Sumbo, and then Apache Drive by Southwestern College, and then we moved to East Lake Greens, and then we moved to uh, East Lake where I live now. And in between those things, I also lived in Gaza. So well, <laughs> a tell lot me about of moving that. around. That's interesting. Yeah. So what, what took you there? Yeah, so my mom and dad were still married, and my dad ha- was working in in Gaza working for the Palestinian Authority when uh, Yasser Arafat came back to the, the territories uh, after, you know, after Bill Clinton, the Israelis and, and the Palestinians signed the, the Oslo Accords to make peace in that ho- the Holy Land, right? Um, where all three monotheisms worship and observe. And uh, my dad followed uh, Arafat in 1994, I want to say. 
uh, after the Oslo Accords were signed. And he was really trying to, as an American-Palestinian, broker that peace that was kind of architected by the United States. Um, so that separation, obviously, was difficult. And so my mom said, let me go and take my kids to Gaza, which is pretty heroic for my mom. I mean, my mom's a Latina from Barrio Logan. She has no business being in Gaza, right? It's just a fish out of water. Didn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture, but because of her abiding, unconditional love for her children, her boys, to know their father, she made that sacrifice. And so I went to Catholic school there because it was the best schools. My dad's Muslim and my mom's Catholic, so we went to Catholic school had a great education. It was it was beautiful to see my cousins and the culture. You know, we have a pretty vibrant cu- culture, Middle Eastern people. Not too dissimilar to Latino culture, if you think about it. Um, great food, great cuisine, great, you know, all of it. We're just a very loving, embracing community. And it was peaceful, because I got there in 1998. And then we came back in 2001. And it was very peaceful until war broke out in 2000. There was an inner conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians. But there was a ceasefire for many years, and that was some of my favorite years growing up. And then conflict breaks out, and then we decide to leave. Um, And we left in August of 2001. We were hoping to leave war behind. We wanted to have a normal American life, peaceful, secure life. And the next month, 9-11 happened. And that... The war followed us. That's what it felt like. We were leaving war behind, and the war followed us to the safest place in the world, the United States, um, our home. And that became difficult, right? Because although, you know, I was 12 years old, you know, it was difficult to be Middle Eastern in that time because people were distrusting and concerned and suspicious, right? Guilt by association. Exactly. Even though we had nothing to do with it. And even though a lot of Middle Eastern folks actually were killed in the Trade Center, right? There, in the World Trade Center, there were people from around the world who were in that building, those 3,000 souls that were taken by that lunatic bin Laden. So that was a very uh, difficult time, and it was around the time I was going to high school as well. So I was kind of trying to figure out, like, am I Latino? Am I Arab? I'm not Latino enough for the Latinos, not Arab enough for the Arabs, not American enough in this post-9-11 world. What am I? Who am I? And then there was, you know, I wondered, can this country ever accept someone like me? This multi-ethnic guy, skinny brown guy with a funny name. And in 2008, the country said, yes, we can, right? President Barack Obama, who has the name Hussein in the middle of his name, right after the Iraq war, gets elected to become president. Now, you, I understand you worked for uh, President mm-hmm. Obama. Tell us about that. What, what, what yeah. was that uh, experience like? How did you end up there? Yeah, so... Uh, d- there was a little bit more to the story. I, you know, was having a hard time in high school, was never very political. I was too busy with my music and all that stuff and girlfriends and just being a kid in high school. Not the greatest grades, just very distracted, I think, looking back probably because my dad wasn't around to discipline and my mom was trying to raise two boys who were rambunctious. Um, and so I was not very good at school, but I eventually what changed me is I got plugged into East Lake Community Church just down the street from there. And I met Pastor Mike Meeks and James Grogan and Kevin McPeak and a couple others at the time, John Lara, who were really my step-in dads. They didn't know it, but they were really my role models. And I was a a janitor. I wasn't giving sermons. I was just a a lowly janitor who was very detail-oriented, and I I would, like, clean the crevices of the the 
the floors with like toothbrushes and the pastor Mike was like this guy's like really loves his job like he's very committed he's not just clocking in like maybe other janitors would and so they took a they took a liking to me and um I got to go play with the worship band because I play music I play bass and guitar and that's how I started getting into the fellowship of the church and it really filled a hole for me this notion that like there's a God who is very loving and unconditionally loving it reminded me of my mom my mom's the most divine thing I've seen in my life is my mom's unconditional love to go live in a war zone for her kids, right? So that, to me, kind of spoke to me. That unconditional love, to me, was a was what I thought God was. So I, I go from janitor to worship guy to uh, assistant pastor to my pastor, uh, John Lira at the time. And I was able to give sermons to the youth, and I realized I had certain talents, public speaking, uh, mentorship, and I was really galvanized, and, and it was intoxicating to, to do public service, to serve others, to use the abundance of your own life, to turn the pain in your own life into purpose for others, right? That, to me, felt like it was a vindicating and a validating explanation for the experiences I had. So that's really what got me into this idea of public service. I wanted to be a therapist shortly after, and I realized I didn't want to be a therapist because you spend all your time listening to people's problems but that's what politicians do too, right? Every public official, now I have to deal with 300,000 people in Chula Vista's problems. But I love it. So, yeah, I moved from therapy to wanting to do politics, and then I, I decided to intern for Barack Obama in uh, the Obama campaign. Nobody wanted to pay me, and I just said, let me do what we do, right? You put your head down, you work, and your work speaks for itself, and people hire you because of your work ethic and your results. So I, I did that. And then I became the regional field director for the Obama campaign, a paid position. And then I got a phone call one day in November of 2012, right before the election. And it was a phone call saying, hey, would you like to come work at the White House? And I immediately hung up the phone. Because I thought it was a lie. I thought someone was crank calling me. I didn't believe it. And then I, they called me back, and it was real. It was surreal. And my life kind of changed forever. Because here was a man who not only helped me navigate my own identity, President Barack Obama, skinny brown guy with a funny name, his father was absent in his life. He lived with his mom. The world projected onto him the identity of the parent he knew less, right? I could relate to all that. And then you had to fill that void and figure out who you were, right? And it's this improbable American journey. It's incredible because 12 years before I got accepted to the White House, I was in Gaza. Very different. And obviously, the United States, we fund, you know, the par a certain part of the war. And so there were Apache helicopters and F-16s flying over my head when I was 12. And then 12 years later, I'm at the White House, being protected by the same thing that could have killed me as a boy. And that's the alchemy of America. It's not a beautiful, perfect love story, but that's the beauty of America, that a kid who was living in Gaza 12 years later could be in the White House and be able to achieve his dreams. And so... That's the real story. It's not the political story that mm -hmm. probably, I mean, I could hear a bunch of potential ads that could be run just out of this podcast alone, but this yeah. is the true story. And it's not pretty, but it's the real story. And then I got to work for the U.S. Department of Labor, the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, start my own small business, run for Congress. And, and Obama really gave me that. Not only did he help me navigate my identity as a man, he gave me the destination, which was the administration to serve. And so I feel very much indebted to, to him. I don't agree with everything he's done, but I definitely feel indebted to, you know, that path that he put me on. 
great. That's that's an amazing journey, and I get for for um for for those folks that are that are listening in. I in fact, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, you know, what what words of encouragement or advice would you give to someone who's thinking about running for office? But I think you you really just laid out a plan. Yeah. So I hope uh, I hope folks that are listening in can can get a couple of nuggets out of this. Right. And I, I the way I look at it is it's possible if that's what you really really want to do. And I think your your personal life journey certainly is a, is a um, testament to that. You probably so have a very similar journey. I think. Similar. Have you shared with folks? I, I haven't, okay. and um, and you know my hope uh, through these type of bot- podcasts are to to share our story because I think not sharing it it's a mistake. Right. Uh, like like you said, you know my journey hasn't always been pretty. There's been failures. There've been successes. Um. Um. You know, perhaps like your parents, you know, right. I came here as an immigrant, you know, in pursuit of the American dream, not really knowing what that dream was right. like. No uh, better than a nightmare back home. It, but it was, it was portrayed to me right. in a way that was attractive. And like millions of people, I came here looking for it. And then, of course, that journey turned out to be with lots of twists and turns and ups and downs. And, uh, but I'll tell you this, I wouldn't change it for the world. I, I genuinely and truly feel privileged. Yeah. You wouldn't be where you are today had you not gone not. through that yeah. adversity, right? Yeah. Was it easy? No. Right. Uh, by no stretch of imagination. But right. nothing is. Right. Uh, but one thing that I did learn is um, that everything has to be earned. Nothing is given. That's right. So one thing that I learned was there is no sense of entitlement, Agreed. regardless of your background. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that more yeah. uh, as we go. Down. But thank you for asking. Now, let's get into some fun facts about you. Okay. I yeah, that was pretty heavy, so let's yeah. lighten it up. Let's, let's <laughs> talk about some facts. So what are the five or ten, uh, ten things that kind of make Omar who he mm. is that, that you want to share with the listeners? Oh, man, that's a pretty broad. Um, I think. Do you speak uh, different languages? Yeah, so I speak English. I try at least. I speak Spanish. Not as well. I'm not going to lie right in front of my field director who's fluent in Spanish. But I could get by. And I speak Arabic pretty fluently. Awesome. Yeah. Out of necessity, right? The Middle East, they don't speak English as well. But here in Chula Vista, people who speak Spanish also speak English. So So were you ever invited to to be on a cover of a magazine, maybe to (laughs) model for some? (laughs) No. No, nothing like that? No, no. no. I did some... some, my my field director, he laughs. He talks about um, what was it? Buzzfeed. Yeah, Buzzfeed. Buzzfeed had like the ten fun facts about uh-huh. me, and I like to play soccer. I'm pretty uh-huh. good at juggling. I play guitar. Um, I enjoy smoking cigars, as you know. Yeah. Now. Um, I like to read. I'm a big you know philosophy student of philosophy. I majored in philosophy and psychology. Um, so I could kind of nerd out on philosophy and talk about Nietzsche and John Paul Sartre and all this stuff, Kierkegaard for days. Um, and I'm also, uh, I think a pretty like a workaholic. I think my team will tell you I'm the first one to text in the morning and the last one to text at night. Um, that's not fun though. That's not a fun fact. I don't think, but I like to smoke cigars and have some whiskey every now and then and, and hang out with the guys. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm very close to my family. My closest friends are my cousins, um, my mom's side of the family who all live here. Um, yeah, so those are the things that kind of keep me going. And I was actually on a on a I was doing an interview with the Tribune, and somebody asked me like, what what drives you? Like, what motivates you when you see it? It motivates you. What really motivates me is examples of stories like yours, 
and, and like mine and others, where people have been able to turn their pain into purpose. I call it the alchemy of America, where you turn your pain into purpose. I am very moved by those stories. I'm also moved by examples of people t- showing that our differences don't outweigh our common humanity, right? Where people step outside themselves and reach across to touch people that aren't like them and find some common ground, right? That really inspires me because it validates what I believe is true about us as people. We have more in common than we do different. Um, And what really pisses me off is when people get treated unequally, right? I'll give you an example. Firefighters, they work 40% more hours and get paid 20% less um, than their partners in, in public service. And I want our police to get paid as good as they get paid now, if not better. But I want to make sure that they're getting paid equally because firefighters, especially in Chula Vista and East Chula Vista, they're answering the call. Not just fires, but paramedics and the EMTs. During during COVID, they set up workstations for vaccines and testing and, and everything else. And they were in the community showing up for people, helping. And you never see them complain, but they are being treated a little bit unequally. So I get pretty animated when people are treated unequally when they put in the work. It's not about entitlement, but I do think that people deserve equal treatment, not special treatment, which is sometimes the entitled people think they deserve to be treated specially for some reason they haven't earned. But I do believe that if you take responsibility, you should be given opportunity, right? So you are a candidate um, in the Chula Vista mayoral race. Right. So you've been actively campaigning. Um, how's that campaign going? But I want you to lay out your vision for Chula Vista because I've had I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, uh, actually all the other candidates. So I've, I've got to hear on the podcast, not on the okay. podcast. I had one of the candidates here on the podcast. Um, Which one? Curious. I had uh, Rudy Ramirez. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, um, who's someone that I that I've gotten to know. So obviously, you know, as, as someone who deeply cares about Chula Vista, I've made it my, my personal mission to really get to know people mm-hmm. beyond kind of the soundbite, beyond what you see on TV. But really, um, what, what is your vision for Chula Vista? Mm-hmm. And then how will you go about implementing? Because right. um, we've had many people along the way, at least the 20 plus years that I've lived in Chula Vista, we've had some great leaders mm-hmm. um, with big vision, big ideas. But if you look at, um, uh, you know, if you look at, well, let's just say the fact is Chula Vista is the second largest city in San Diego County, but yet we haven't quite um, actualized our potential, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and I know there's a ton of potential here. So the question then is then why? So, so talk about your vision, but tell us how you're going to implement it in, in this kind of a politically charged environment that we find ourselves in mm-hmm. with everything that we've learned over the last two years, post-pandemic, as you call it. Uh, what does that look like? And, um, and anything else that you want to share? Yeah, so I've been on a listening tour from August to March 10th. That's when I stopped listening tour and actually decided to file to run for mayor of Chula Vista. And I was on a listening and learning tour. I think that's really important. If you want to lead, you got to listen and learn first, especially if you're seeking elected office, because your job is to, you know, represent people, not to just execute your own mandate, but you got to listen to people. And as I was listening to people in West Chula Vista and East Chula Vista, um, going back to my old, you know, uh, stomping grounds off of J Street, uh, Woodlawn and Kearney, going to Third Avenue, going to Broadway, going to the shopping center that I used to go to in the AMC and 
the carousel isn't there anymore, but it still is that community that I grew up in. Um, you know, as I've gone to those areas and, and also come here to Otay Ranch Mall and talking to folks and going to San, the San Miguel Ranch where the Albertson still is not there, and we need to fix that, um, hearing people's concerns and, and saying, you know, the things I think are concerning are also the same things that the voters are thinking. So that told me that I was able to meet the moment with the same concerns. And then I thought, why do we have these roadblocks? Why is Chula Vista being kind of treated as, again, unequally compared to San Diego City? We're kind of the afterthought of San Diego. And, you know, Chula Vista has about 300,000 people, close to about 280,000. Let's just call it 300,000 people. And San Diego City has 1.5 million. So they are five times the size of Chula Vista, but their budget is $4.7 billion. City of Chula Vista is, is $475 million. So here we are, one-fifth of that city's size, but we have one-tenth of their budget. And we are becoming a, 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 a big city with big city problems, right? What's the indicator of a big city problem? Homelessness, right? Big cities are the ones that have homeless problems. Now we have a homeless issue. So how do we take that challenge into and turn it into an opportunity that we're becoming this big potentially global city, this binational city that's really becoming an attraction, not just to homeless, hopefully, but to people who want to bring their dollars. So I think I'm uniquely positioned to create the partnerships to actually deliver that. You know, Rudy came on, I'm sure he talked about, you know, a university and the 125 and the Bayfront and how he was part of that project for years. And the question is, how come you haven't gotten it done been a promise for 25 years. I was in the second grade when they were talking about the university in the Bayfront, and it's never happened. And I think it's because it's one thing to talk about it, but you have to bring the partnerships. And what I bring to the table is the ability to to use my relationships in Washington, in the federal government, with the congressional delegation, the five of them, right? Sarah Jacobs, Mike Levin, um, Scott Peters, Juan Vargas, and even Daryl Issa. He and I get along now after fighting really hard like dogs. We're both Arab Americans, so we settled, we buried the hatchet, had a cigar, and now we're, you know, we work together on things that we find mutual agreement on. But those are the relationships that are going to help us bring federal funding, our money. It's not Washington's money. When I talk about Washington solutions for Chula Vista, people say, well, why does that matter? Well, it's tax season right now. And every year, the city of Chula Vista residents, we pay more in federal taxes and we get in return for services from the federal government. And we just passed a $1.7 trillion uh, infrastructure plan. That money can go to pay off the 125 to fix our roads in West Chula Vista to help uh, with the Bayfront. So we need to create those public-private partnerships, those local and federal partnerships. You know, I've, I've talked to the chancellor of UCSD about maybe looking at this idea of the University and the Innovation District, the 400 acres that we've put out in East Chula Vista that we've been talking about for 25 years, you know, maybe seeing if we could partner with UCSD or a high-tech high to make that dream a reality, right? And those are the partnerships that I bring that none of the canons do. The way they look at, you know, development in the city of Chula Vista, whether it's the Bayfront or more housing or the 125 or uh, or uh, the university, is there's three ways you could you could fund these programs. One is if you cut services from other programs, which we should not do. Two is if we continue to raise sales tax, which we need to not do anymore because I think we're pricing people out and pushing out developers and investors. Or three, you grow the economy. 
right? And all the opponents I'm running uh, against don't have a vision to grow the economy, to bring outside investors and make Chula Vista a more pro-business city. So let's talk about that. Why would an investor want to come and set up shop here in Chula Vista? Well, right now, there's not much of an incentive, right? With the permitting and the red tape and, and, and the bureaucratic difficulties that I hear from business owners all the time. People who are like, I've been in the permitting process for two years. You know, Canelo, the boxer, wants to open up a shop in West Chula Vista, and he's been waiting and sitting on that property for two years. He could be a major attraction to Chula Vista, but he can't do it. And there are countless stories like that where business owners are like, we're interested. Chula Vista has a lot going for it. It's just, you know, north of the border. It has that, you know, traditional Latino, especially in West Chula Vista, culture that people crave throughout the region. There's people who don't want to go to Tijuana. They could just go to Chula Vista. But we haven't created the amenities to make it attractive, right? Um, and I think Chula Vista has, a, like I think we talked about this, an image problem, right? We're seen as Chulawana, right? The drive-by city on your way to Tijuana. Or we're, we're conflated with National City or San Isidro, which they have their own identities than us, right? For better or worse, we are different than Chula Vista, than as Chula Vistans to those other areas that are our neighbors. And so it's an image issue. So part of it's an image issue. Part of it's the bureaucratic red tape and the permitting process and all that that we need to streamline and make easier. Uh, so the image issue, the, the bureaucratic aspect, and also having a mayor who will just say, we are open for business. We want your business. We are going to get these things done. We are going to partner with you and create public-private partnerships. We're not going to just close the doors and stall opportunities. And I think that investors think Chula Vista doesn't ha have its act together. I mean, when you look at the trash problem that we had recently, where people were just stockpiling their trash, and with all due respect, our mayor was in Italy on vacation. I mean, that's that kind of complacency would make any big business person say, like, do we want to do business in Chula Vista? So part of it's the complacency of our leadership. Part of it's the image problem. And then also part of it's just the, the draconian prohibitive uh, business, anti-business kind of climate that we have in Chula so Vista. So I understand uh, Chula Vista loses on millions of dollars mm -hmm. um, on economic opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for I think a fairly simple reason because we put all the housing here in South County and we put all the business cluster in the North County. Um, I, won't, I won't get into the, 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 the reasoning behind that, um, but over the last few decades, what has resulted is probably a great population or percentage of our population in Chula Vista, the high earners, the, you know, the engineers, the, the programmers, and, and so on and so forth, they actually have to leave Chula Vista right. to go north to their place of employment. Right. So that, that, to me, that, that is a massive mm -hmm. kind of uh, daily migration, right. which has resulted in what you're talking about. Right. You know, we have one-tenth of a budget compared to the city of San Diego right. versus we have one-fourth of the right. population. Right. So as a mayor, what can you do? What legal authorities do you have? Mm. What specific things can you do right. to, to reverse that, that, um, that dynamic? Because if we continue going this way, I can only imagine that you know, matters right. would, would get worse over time. So... Mm -hmm. What what are your thoughts and ideas on that? Yeah, so first, you know, you're right. We're a bedroom community. We're a bedroom community with a housing problem. So 
what are you doing right if that's true, right? You're a bedroom community with still people who can't afford housing, right? Housing, the, the quality housing, home ownership is a still a struggle for some people, unless you have a good realtor. Um, so there's that struggle, right? So, you know, downtown San Diego has a housing problem, but it's not a bedroom community, right? It's commercial. So that's why that's okay, but we don't even have commercial, real commercial engine here. That's where the Bayfront comes in. That's where the university becomes a hub of innovation. And, you know, my, my vision, to get back to the vision, and we'll talk about the specifics, is I really do think we're on the dawn of a new day. We're going to have a new mayor next year because the current one's retiring. We're going to have this new economic opportunity with post-pandemic. We're gonna, this, the next mayor is going to have the new Bayfront and a new university if the right person's there. And that's going to create new industries. It's going to create new jobs and new housing opportunities. So really just kind of getting out of our own way and allowing developers and investors to really get these things online, right? The university, the Bayfront, pay off the 125. And when it comes to the 125, making Chula Vista more accessible, the solution for the 125 is to sell it to Sacramento. That's what Ben Hueso, Senator Ben Hueso is working on. And the reasoning behind that is we already pay gas tax. And gas tax is supposed to go to infrastructure investment. So why are we being double taxed with the toll road and the gas tax for the same service, right? So selling it, Sandag currently owns it, bought it from the Australian investors, sell it to Sacramento and have them pay it down with the taxes we already spend, right? So that's that takes somebody who understands how government works, not just locally and bogged down by just how do I make things work? How do I fund pro- programs? Do I have to raise taxes or cut services here? That's the small-minded thinking that a global city needs more than, right? So that's that's one. Um, we have to make it easier to, to start a business. So the permitting process, we need to cut that process in half, right? Make it a lot easier. There's so much red tape, and the mayor can do that with the city council, right? Um, make sure that we uh, have more grant writers. Frankly, Imperial Valley gets more federal grants than we do. And we have so much more going for us, right? So we need to hire grant writers. It's not sexy. But the grant writers can bid for federal money, for state money, for private philanthropic money. And we could use that money to make the investments we need to get us over this hump. So part of it is changing our ordinances, changing our laws to make it more pro-business, whether it's the permitting process and the red tape and everything else. And the other part is getting the financial, getting the capital to invest in these programs without having these bedroom community people who live here have to dig deeper into their pockets and and pay more in taxes, right? So for for our small businesses Mm -hmm. that uh, I understand make up, uh, uh, you know, the the, the great uh, Mm -hmm. percentage of of, um, our economic activities in Chula Vista, Mm -hmm. but yet that population is the most vulnerable. Right. What message do you have for them? I mean, if they're, if they're listening in and they're dealing with their daily struggles, mm-hmm. just making ends meet, uh, yet they have to compete with uh, regional malls, you know, people that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, consumers go where the products and pricing right. and services. I mean, that's just the reality right. of it. Um, what message do you have for them? What can they get out of this, this new, um, the new dawn, as you call it? And what hope could they have? Absolutely. So, um, so that they can continue to thrive in, in, you know, in, in, in the future of, of our great right. city. 
That's a great question, Max. That's really a defining question for the next mayor because West Chula Vista, the Bayfront's going to have a massive impact on economic growth. And you have to balance as mayor and create the kind of the guardrails to make sure that, that rejuven- that's it's rejuvenation, not gentrification. That you're not shutting down all the small businesses and, and sucking them dry of opportunity because now this magnet is now taking over the economic activity of West Chula Vista. So how do we help, you know, make Broadway and Third Avenue, uh, make them gateways to the Bayfront, where people spend their money not just at the Bayfront, but come and spend your money around the different corridors that get you there. Um, and so that's that's an image thing, right? So as my promise as mayor is to make sure that we grow our economy, but we do it as through the path of small business, that we empower small business and to any developer out there who's listening and saying, well, I don't know if I want that. If you get rid of the small business community, which I will not allow to happen, you're going to take away the one thing that makes Chula Vista Chula Vista. If you gentrify it, all of a sudden the the attraction that is Chula Vista, it's gone. You've taken its soul. Small businesses are the soul of Chula Vista. And we got to keep that unique niche. Otherwise we're going to become another, you know, not to, attack other cities, but, you know, maybe you know, people think Barrio Logan's become too gentrified, right? They're, why go to Chula Vista if it's going to be like another Point Loma or something like that? So keep that kind of original, organic, authentic character and culture that makes Chula Vista Chula Vista, that Latino binational relationship, that that heartbeat that we have in Chula Vista. And so my promise is we're going to make sure to grow with small businesses at the forefront of our mind. And we were given $60 million in COVID money from the federal government. We spent $30 million of it so far, and I would argue not very well. The other $30 million we have to spend by 2024. That's the mandate. So I want to make sure, and my promise is in the next two years, or the next year when I'm there in 2023, we'll spend that money in a way that really, really helps small businesses get back on their feet and help, their re- help them renovate if they need to um, and help them if they need to relocate. Um, that money is there for that. So opportunities on its way, the money is there. We just need to make sure that we have a mayor who can administrate it the right way with city council and make sure that, you know, we have a mayor who also wants to cut the red tape, not just give you money, but make it easier to even start and scale a business, right? And right now we don't have that. And it goes back to the years of, I think, I've heard, you know, uh, the city of Chula Vista was making a lot of its money from fees, charging people fees. So they made money off of st- turning down your permit and saying, apply again. There's something wrong with it. Go Come back to us in six months. And this city was really making its money off of charging people fees and penalties all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a city scared of its own growth. That's what the leadership has been. We have a binational city with one-dimensional leadership. And that's what happens. You have a, you have a city government that isn't keeping up with the pace of progress of, of the business community. And what I promise to do is to have you know, a, a pro-business, pro-small business city hall when I'm elected. Well, Omar, I know uh, we have so much more to talk yeah. about, but, I, but uh, I, know, I know you're busy, your time is limited. So before we wrap up, um, how do people uh, learn more about your campaign? Uh, where do they volunteer? Yeah. What's the website? So we'll, we'll put that up so awesome. our, our listeners can, can tap into it. Yeah, so you can go to campacampaign.com. It's a stutter, campacampaign.com. Uh, this I don't know when this podcast is going to come up, but on Tuesday, a week from yesterday, uh, April 19th, we're having a meet and greet at the Chula Vista Brewery 
in Eastlake. So if you want to come meet me in person, shake my hand, talk to me about stuff, you can meet me there. And if you like my vision, which is to renovate in West Chula Vista and innovate in East Chula Vista, get us the Bayfront, the university, maybe even a stadium. We didn't even talk about that by the Olympic Training Center, which means we'd have to improve our roadways. There's so much that we can do. But we need a mayor who could step up and step in and really meet this moment of a new day that we're going to be on the precipice of. And we cannot afford 20 more years of waiting for these promises. And if we keep recycling the same old career politicians, not nothing against Rudy or anybody else who's going to come on your program, but career politicians who keep making the same promises but keep show nothing but empty words and broken promises, that's not going to get there. We need to try somebody new, a third-generation Chulavistan like myself, and someone who's lived on both East and West. I have the unique experience of understanding what it's like to live on both sides. And I want to create a cohesive city um, with a vision towards the future. And that's the vision that I'm providing. So go to campacampaign.com. You can donate there. Uh, you can also um, see what our next events are going to be. And Max, thank you very much for your time. Omar, thank you so much for joining me. And I appreciate you sharing your vision. And thank you, San Diego, for listening in. Until next time.